again. I'm um, going to talk about wildlife photography again. Um, I feel a little bit like I'm just cutting the same subject from different directions, but I, th I hope in doing that, maybe there are some insights popping through and maybe I'm coming up with things that I hadn't um, covered precisely before. So in this podcast, I want to talk about how to avoid the common mistakes that many people make when they are photographing wildlife. And this includes the... Um, um, sort of wind up to getting there or the planning stage as well so I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about so the first of first thing is that some people expect animals to just be there kind of like going to a zoo and that doesn't happen um, another mistake people make is when they buy an expensive camera they assume that they're going to get an immediate improvement in their photographs and while Possibly they'll become a little bit sharper or better exposed, those sorts of things compared to what they were using before. And that depends on what they were using before and what they've moved to. Essentially, you're going to get the same photographs because the camera is just the tool that you use. And it's like um, um, if you bought a, a chisel and you, you, um, you know, were attacking a bit of stone, you're not going to suddenly turn into uh, Michelangelo through buying an expensive chisel. So that's another one I'll talk about. Uh, some people don't do any research, and that is also very important, and they'll get disappointed that way. And I'm going to talk about things like um, shutter speed, ISO, and also not really understanding what the camera can do for them and how to make the best use of the camera. And that's something I've spoken about a few times. Um, there's... The issue about a focus pictures as well, so how you can remedy that, because you might be shooting a subject that is behind a lot of things that are going to confuse, or maybe even in front of a lot of things that will confuse the autofocus. So that might be, um, you know, trees, uh, branches, that kind of stuff, or even long grass. They're the things you will often come across. So they'll all, you know, can conspire to um, give you a lot of out of focus pictures. Uh, you may not be prepared when something happens. That's another thing to consider. The subject might be too small, uh, so you're not using the right lens or you're not thinking about how to compose the picture. And finally, I do want to talk about composition. How do you set the picture up so that it's interesting? If you look at the kind of photographs that are in something like a National Geographic, um, how do they compare to what you're shooting? So they're broadly the subjects that I want to talk about in uh, this particular podcast. So I'll go back to the first one. And that is just, first of all, to understand that you don't just turn up and the animals are there. And one of the um, frustrations in wildlife photography is that you can put an awful a lot of effort and time, and that can be, include traveling to uh, another country, uh, spending a lot of money, and you can come away with no photographs of the animal that you've gone over to see because... Uh, Animals will do their thing and there's quite a lot of luck involved in being in the right place at the right time. So what can you do about that? Well, basically, there's not too much often. Uh, so an example is when I was in Uganda this year, I went to, one of the things I wanted to photograph was chimpanzees. And I really had one shot at it. There was only one day where I was going to this particular uh, national park and I had to arrange a pass. And often with the the national parks you'll find that there are a limited number of passes available every year so you have to book well in advance with a um, 
a tour operator, they will have access to a certain number of passes, but once they've gone, they've gone. And um, certainly the case in Uganda with both gorillas and chimpanzees, they limit the size of the groups that can go every day to see these animals. So in the case of the gorillas, it was a maximum of eight people in a group, and that was every day. So if you think about the number of people that want to go and see these animals, clearly that's going to severely limit your chances. And if you get unlucky, your chances of having a second day with them are probably uh, very low or even non-existent. So this is something to consider. And you really do have to, to, if you've got no control over um, repeat visits, then you've pretty much got to accept that um, you, you know you get the one shot at it and and some of these other things I'm going to talk about will also tie into that but you've won you've got one shot at it and once it's gone it's gone now that may not be the case when I went to photograph tigers in India what I did there was I stayed we deliberately stayed in in one park at Karna we were there for about 10 days and we went into the park every opportunity we had so with Karna on Wednesday afternoons, they actually close the park and, and it's always closed at lunchtime and it's only open specific hours in the morning, specific hours in the afternoon. And that gives the animals a, a bit of a rest and um, it makes it easier to manage it. But it's a way of preserving the wildlife park and not overstressing the animals. And I've seen some guides when I've been in um, Kenya, Tanzania, places like that in the Serengeti, they will actually drive at animals to get a response so that the people who are with them get a photograph. But that to me is not um, ethical. That That's not the kind of uh, group I want to be involved with. So what I did at Kana, we just went out on every occasion we could. I think it was 17 trips in all. And we got to see tigers on just under half of those. And then of those sightings, there were probably only one or two that gave us really good photographs. The rest might be the tiger walking down a road or just sat in the bushes and not doing anything. And um, I mean, even that became a bit of a circus at times, although nobody was deliberately um, going at the tigers to get a response. So the bottom line on that is just be prepared to not get anything at all. This is just... Uh, the nature of wildlife photography and this was also the same when I was photographing um, whales quite often we would go out and there'd be nothing at all we might see a splash a long way off and that was it or we'd just see whales swimming and just see the dorsal fins so that that would be most of the the trips and you might get breaches one in three if you were lucky but it's that kind of a ratio so just be aware that that's what goes on the second thing is um getting a good camera which is is great because good cameras will give you a lot of creative control and a lot of control over lighting uh, depth of field all this sort of stuff but you do need to understand the camera and understand what the key things are about photography that you really need to know in order to get the, the most from it and somebody did say to me and this is why I kind of talk about it from time to time is that <laughs> He'd assume that when he bought a good camera, the photographs would immediately get better. And he was very disappointed to find out his photography was exactly the same. And that's because the most important part of a camera system, to use an old quote, is the 12 inches behind the viewfinder. So when you invest in um, camera equipment, 
you do need to make sure you understand the gear. You don't need to know it hugely in depth, but you you do need to understand the critical things. So exposure triangle, just have a basic understanding of what that is, how it operates. It's, it, it, it gets overly complicated. I compare it to driving a car. You need to understand the relationship between um, the pressure putting on the throttle pedal, the accelerator, uh, the gas pedal, the um, difference that makes to the the speed and what that does to your fuel consumption. So that's another triangle. And it's one that most drivers would ha- know at least to some extent and have a basic understanding of it. And uh, the exposure triangle is very similar um, with cameras, but you do need to have some understanding of it. And with that understanding, you can transform your photography because you now know what you have to change to get certain results. So do spend time getting to know your camera. And the thing I recommend is just where you live, go out and photograph as much as you can. And fo- if you've got access to local wildlife, if you're going to do a wildlife shoot, try and shoot that. Shoot birds. You know, they're around all over the show, so it's very easy to shoot birds. And they're a very good subject because they can be quite tricky. If you don't have birds and animals, try photographing cars because they're moving objects. Um, even static things, trees or flowers, those kind of things. But do shoot what you can with your camera so that you begin to instinctively know what you've got to change to get a particular result. Now, I mentioned that some people don't do any research. I think that's important. You don't, again, have to do heaps of it, but do um, do enough research to understand a little bit about the animal's behaviours when you're likely to see them. I mean, obviously, getting a local guide as well is another one. I haven't particularly mentioned that, but some people just go off on their own. And they really don't know what they're doing. So get a local guide because they'll know the environment, they'll know the animals, they'll they'll know other things that are going on around to help them find animals. So again, going back to India, one of the things that the guide would listen for was actually the, the alarm call from one of the deer, which was a bit like a bark. It sounded like a bark, like a dog's bark. And the reason they were listening for that was that that deer was making that call because the chances are there was a tiger about because the tiger was their 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 primary predator Uh, in fact i think probably the only predator thinking about it so they would warn other other animals and it wouldn't just be other deer but other animals are tuned into that alarm call as well and they'll know that a a tiger is in the area and um you know they'll get away from it so we would be listening for that call and that gave us a, a reasonable idea of where a tiger that there was a tiger there in the first place and also where it was likely to be and then we would kind of get as close as we could could and keep our eyes out and then look for things like tracks and um, um, you know other spore and track them down so doing a bit of research is very very helpful and particularly if you're heading off somewhere and you're just going to do a bit of photography on your own if it's a particular bird or particular animal just find out what you can about them when they're most active um, where they like to go. If it's a predator, they all tend to be where the prey is. So where, do, where does their prey go? Um, think about those kind of things and do a bit of research. Obviously, I could talk about that a lot more, but I'm not going to. Now, I also mentioned um, shutter speed and ISO being wrong and all of this kind of thing. So these are aspects of using the camera. So the things to be aware of there, first of all, the animal you're going to shoot, what is it doing? Are you going to try and capture pictures of it moving so if you're going to do that what shutter speed do you want do you want to shoot very fast so that you freeze it 
Or do you want to get a bit of blur motion in there? Do you want it moving? Do you need to track it against so the, a moving animal against a blurred background? Because that can be great for giving an impression of speed in your picture. Are you shooting a portrait of it? Do you want to get in close and shoot a portrait? Or are you going to do a broader picture? Are you going to look at it in context? So I'm going to come back to that particular aspect of it um, in a minute. So you do need to know what sort of shutter speed to use. So having decided on what kind of shutter speed, what's the environment you're in? And what I mean by that is will the subject be brightly lit? So you can um, have quite a low ISO. So with a, with a, low, a low ISO is generally better. As you go higher, the, the image gets grainier and that will particularly show in things like sky or where you've got the same colour or the same tone over a larger area of the um, image. That will become more obvious. But if you're trying to shoot a high shutter speed in a dark environment, you'll set your aperture to get your depth of field, but you've got to have to compensate to bring uh, the, um, the sensitivity of the camera up in order to get your shutter speed quite often. So if you don't understand what I'm talking about, um, I do have a course where I explain all of that. Um, but uh, essentially you do have to, and this is this relationship I was talking about with the exposure triangle. So you've got to understand that if you want a high shutter speed in a dark environment, you're going to have to push your ISO up to compensate. Now, it may be also that you're in, in an environment where the light changes very sharply, and that can be in a forest environment or um, where you have broken a tree area. So... You might have areas of very bright sunshine getting through between the trees and also where there's shaded areas that can be quite dark. So how do you set the camera up to cope for that if the animal might be moving quickly between one and the other? Um, so again, you've got to have that understanding of how your camera works. Now, if the animal is going to be fairly stationary and th that makes life easier and then you can even, if you're lucky, do a test shot, have a quick look at it and then know whether what you've got to compensate so the environment you're in will make a difference and how fast you need to shoot the animals so again for example when i'd be photographing humpback whales i would try and get my shutter speed up in the thousandth of a second because that would freeze the motion of the animal and i would do that because the the whale is moving it's breaching and a breach lasts between one and two seconds so it's over very quickly and I was possibly moving because I might have to swing round to get the animal in frame very quickly because you don't always know and often you don't know where the animal is coming up, where the humpback is coming up in the water because it's moving underwater and you can't see it. And then thirdly, the, the boat that I'm on is also moving most likely. So it's very rare that I'd be, I'd be out there on a flat, calm day and the boat wasn't moving at all. Often we'd be moving quite a lot. So everything is moving basically so in order to compensate for that and get a, a, a picture where the animal is frozen and maybe even droplets of water are frozen or the, the water running off its body as it came as it comes out of the water is all frozen as well I've got to be shooting very fast so I need to make sure that my shutter speed is where I want it my exposure is where I want it uh, my depth of field is where I want it because I might want the out of the background out of focus a little bit to create some depth so you really do need to understand your camera in order to do that and um, also understand what you're going for when it comes to um, shutter speed, ISO. Also how to use the camera because the semi-automatic modes will work best normally for you. That's what 
I think most wildlife photographers use, I certainly do. And it means that you have some control over what the camera's doing and, and what your final result will look like. But the camera is also doing some of the heavy lifting for you in terms of um, getting certain settings, calculating certain settings for you automatically. So that's important to do. Now, out-of-focus pictures is another common one. And I mentioned before that you might be photographing an animal that's, you know, in the tree somewhere or has long grass between you and it. So um, the reason I mentioned that, it means that the camera's autofocus might not know exactly what it's supposed to be focusing on. And the chances are it'll be focusing on the wrong thing. So, again, you'll need to just understand a little bit about how your autofocus works and make sure that you have it on the best setting and normally that would be a single pixel often the center um, but you could or by default it's likely to be the center pixel um, in the the, um, the, the, the central focusing area so you want the minimum area possible usually in the center um, of the uh, viewfinder center of the image but that's the one you want to be focusing on because once you've um, got your camera on that spot you can set the focus to be there now I don't use the shutter button to do my focus because um, usually what will happen is you'll set the focus and also the exposure by pressing the shutter button halfway down so whatever you're pointed at at that point and as long as you hold your finger down on the um, shutter button that's going to set the um, the light reading on the camera usually and also the autofocus but of course, if things are moving, so this is where shooting birds is quite a good um, thing to practice on because they're moving a lot and you could be going from something that's relatively close to you to the sky or a cloud, which will go infinity. So get used to working the autofocus on something that can be moving. Now, I use back button focusing. So if you don't know what that is, again, just look it up or again, it's in the course that I um, sell to teach people how to um, get the most from their camera uh, the idea of back button focusing is that you just once you've got the point you want to focus on you use that button to set focus and then you can press the shut button and move around and actually recompose the shot with your subject not in the center of the frame and um, the focus doesn't change so that's why i use that so that's something to um Look at it. it can take a bit of practice getting used to it, but I have it on both of the camera bodies I use normally. I, I use back button focusing. The next thing is the subject. So a lot of people shoot with the subject out of focus. Uh, sorry, not out of focus, but very small in the frame. So that brings you back to what lens are you using? Ideally, with most animals, you want a reasonable telephoto lens. I, my go-to lenses are 100 to 400 although uh, when I was photographing gorillas I found that a shorter zoom um, a 28 to 135 was actually better uh, and that was because the 100 to 400 is quite long and when you're at full zoom if you wobble at all if you move at all there's quite a lot of change in where your subject is in the frame and it's much easier let's say to have a blurry subject with a longer lens so um, with a short zoom, because I was in an environment that was quite dark with the gorillas, I found it a lot easier to get usable shots. When I switched to the 100 to 400 and I only used it once, I just found the pictures were just too... I couldn't get a good sharp 
image with the 100 to 400 I really needed to be on a tripod in that situation and I didn't have one with me again if you're photographing birds really the best lens for that in most cases is a 600 mil but you really need a tripod for that because it's it's too long a lens to handhold in most situations and get good sharp images so again think about the lens you've got and I'm going to move on to composition and move it and include it with this so what kind of image you're going for do you want to shoot portraits of animals do you want to get in really close so that would lean, lean you towards a longer lens or do you want to shoot them in context you might want to shoot say a group of elephants in a savannah landscape or um, buffalo or something else or it may be that you've got um, something like a lion just following um, its prey um, just just keeping it you know coming in close on it and you might want to get both animals in shot possibly both in focus or one or other out of focus or even switching it from one in focus to the other being in focus um, when they're um, j just following um, their prey there is a word for that which completely escaped me <laughs> but you're probably thinking it and saying why doesn't he say it um, so and the other thing about it is with a wide shot, if you want to practice with wide, it gives you context and you can become more of a visual storyteller. Although having said that, I find good portraits of animals equally powerful because they give you a level of connection with the animal that you wouldn't normally have. And if you're one-on-one -on -one with the animal, I'm thinking here of a big predator like a lion or something like that, you wouldn't necessarily want to get that close. Uh, I'd been very close to a crocodile, like a couple of metres away, and got very close up shot, but... It was kind of hairy and I've also been taking photographs of a lion and one in particular I could just see from the way it was looking at me if it felt it had a good chance of catching me and eating me <laughs> it would give it a go so but you can by zooming in really capture the expression on the animal's face and also remember that if you shoot with the biggest possible uh, image size um, and I mean that by file size so the maximum number of pixels that your camera can give you it gives you the opportunity to crop in and still have a reasonably good uh, resolution on that that image. So you may not be able to get in as close as you'd like with the lens that you have, but if you uh, have quite a big raw image to start with, you, you will be able to crop in at least to some extent and um, get perhaps a more impactful photograph. And that's another thing to think about. When you've taken the shot, maybe you have to do it fast. And that will happen if you're not, pre if, if, so you need to be prepared when something happens. And once you've got that shot, you might be able to re-crop it because the framing might not be exactly the way you want. But if a predator is suddenly going after a prey animal, then that's all happening really fast. And um, all you can do there is just make sure you've got your focus about right. You've got enough depth of field that the animals are in focus and... I would recommend then just having your camera set to maximum burst mode and shooting bursts, shoot several of them. And you can even do that even with an animal that's not doing very much. But if an animal's yawning, um, again, something like an, a lion or a cheetah or a tiger, that can be quite impressive. But you generally get a moment where the, the mouth is wide open and you can see the teeth. It might give the kind of expression um that looks like it's growling or, or, or that that sort of expression. In fact, you often get that with a yawn. But if you get that moment, uh, you, you that picture can look pretty impressive. But you've got to be ready to take the shot. 
So a few things to think about there. So I'll just recap on what I spoke about. So the first thing is to remember that the animals are just doing their thing. They may be moving around a large territory or a large area. And there is always the possibility that you will put a lot of time and effort and money into going to see an animal and you won't see anything at all. So just be prepared for that. And that also means being ready for when something does happen is all the more important, which I've just been speaking about. When it, com- when it comes to your camera, make sure you understand the basics and practice as much as possible doing the kind of photography that you'll be doing when you're away. So do it when you're at home. If you do any little trips away from home, just always have the camera with you. Shoot as often as you can and really get to know that camera so you can um, a- a- adjust for different situations different lighting, whatever the situation might be, without having to think about it too much and definitely without having to look, start looking things up. I mean, you definitely don't want to be uh, in that situation. The next thing I spoke about was doing your research. So find out about the animal. What are its habits? Are there particular times of year that it's best to go and see them if you're traveling? Um, what time of day are you most likely to see them? Um, what do they feed on? Does, so that will dictate where they're likely to be. And if you can, get a guide or get somebody local who really knows the area and knows the animals because that they're going to give you the best chance of getting the kind of uh, photograph that you'll be really pleased with and will be made, make the whole um, trip worthwhile. Okay, I then spoke about shutter speeds and ISOs. So you can get a blurry picture and that also... Um, ties into the equipment you're using uh, you might want a blurry picture because it can give you movement but most often we don't we want to frame things freeze that moment that millisecond maybe so make sure that you understand how you can achieve that on the camera equipment you have um, and adjust compensate for anything that might impact your ability to do that so here i'm thinking about lighting primarily As I said, be prepared for when something happens. Often with animals, it can happen pretty fast. And if you're not ready, uh, you're going to miss it. And it's highly likely you will not get a second chance at that situation. So always be ready to go. Um, I always have my camera on high burst mode. And um, look, it might be you shoot a bunch of shots, the rubbish, but all you need is that one shot. And that can make the whole trip absolutely worthwhile for you. So um, do be ready. Think about how you want to present your subject. So a lot of people have the subject too small. You don't want anybody looking at the picture, kind of staring at it, trying to work out where the subject is. And um, that leads into composition. So what sort of composition do you want? Do you want to be telling a story? Are you looking to have people connect with that animal? Are you trying to tell the story of where they live or what they're doing? All of those things affect the uh, the, uh, composition. And remember that when you take the shot, sometimes you have to move, you have to do it quickly. So if you've got the maximum image size that that camera is capable of, that will give you the maximum number of options when it comes to recropping and just changing the um, the, the way the, the photograph is set up when you're looking at the post-processing stage. And just a word on post-processing, I post-process pretty much everything. Uh, usually it's just correcting for exposure. Uh, the camera might have done a reasonable job, but I might not like exactly what it's done. So it 
becomes personal taste at that point but I've got the the latitude to um, adjust it because I've got the basics pretty much right so that I always do I might adjust the colors so sometimes I'll switch um, I always shoot in color but um, I might change that to black and white just because of circumstances so often if it's very overcast and it's kind of a dull looking day uh, I'll play around with black and white and play with the contrast just because that will in my opinion it will give me a, a, a picture with greater impact and I'm happy with that picture so and, and of course the other thing is just recropping so I might have a, a, a picture that to me has too much of nothing in it and I've, I've shot it in a a landscape format I might just play with a portrait format and that can often change the feel of a, a, an image when you do that so think about your post-processing post-processing and just set the camera up to give you the maximum possible options so as I say the biggest um, file size the biggest image it will capture always shoot in raw um, and then get to know your camera equipment and how the the, the semi-automatic modes work for you and um, go from there. Now, if you do want to learn more about that, uh, I do have training courses. Uh, you probably ought to email me on those because as I'm recording this, they're not immediately available. That's more down to technical issues with my um, the, the way I'm selling stuff at the moment. Uh, if you want to become a Patreon member, that is um, linked on my website. So if you go to www.ge.photography, the Patreon membership has different levels of membership and at least the last two of them are very much, they're much more orientated to the photography side of it rather than just buying my photographs or having an input on what goes into collections and that sort of thing. So there is a shift in how the membership works. So if that sounds like it's of interest, uh, have a look on the website you can always contact me. That is on the website. So if you'd like to know more about the um, photography courses, you're very welcome to um, contact me and I will send you a link so you can have a look at them, see if they're for you and um, take it from there. So I hope you found that interesting and I uh, hope that's been useful for you. And I look forward to speaking to you again on the next podcast. So bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, You'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 